this Monday, September the 28th. You're listening to Law and Gospel. And on Mondays, we take a look at a lesson for the following Sunday, which is the 18th Sunday after Pentecost, October the 4th, in the year of our Lord, 2020. And the lessons are from Isaiah, Philippians, and Matthew. I'm going to do something different today. Normally, I just take one lesson, but today I'm going to take two. And and the reason for that, they are very, very similar. Isaiah chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 33. Now, we're in a three-year lessons. In other words, we have the same lessons every three years. So you have four lessons every Sunday. An Old Testament lesson, an epistle, a gospel, and a psalm. Now, a lot of times, the Old Testament lesson is very similar to the gospel reading. And that's what we're going to find out today. They're really close. And then the epistle is often a long-running understanding of a particular book in the Bible. Uh, For example, we finished a number of weeks on Romans, and now in the last two weeks we've been doing Philippians, and that's what's going to be the lesson for this coming Sunday from Philippians 3. But we want to take a look at Isaiah 5 and Matthew 21. Let's start with Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a vine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, what is this talking about? Scripture interprets Scripture. If you go down to verse 7, it tells you what this vineyard is. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. In other words, God made this wonderful vineyard, planted it, dug it, cleared it of stones. He put in it choice vines, but instead of yielding really good grapes, it yielded wild grapes. So verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Now, you can trace the history of the people of God, and you'll see this is exactly what happened. 
They were in bondage 400 years in Egypt. God took them out of Egypt. He took them to the Red Sea, and of course, they were very, very scared because the Egyptians were chasing them, and the Red Sea was blocking them from getting away. What did God do? He opened up the Red Sea. He dried it, and they walked across. And when the Egyptians attempted to follow them, guess what? They were all drowned, the Egyptian soldiers. Wow. Talk about God doing a lot for his people. Well, what did the people do? They almost immediately began to complain that they did not have any water. So God gave them water. Then they complained they did not have any food. Then God gave them manna. Then they complained that they did not have any meat. So God sent them birds, which they could cook. In, in other words, God did everything for his people. They got to Mount Sinai, and Moses was up on the mountain for some time, and the people were impatient. What did they do? They made a golden calf and began to worship it. Wow. That really shows verse 4 of Isaiah 5. What more was there to do for my vineyard, says the Lord, that I have not done in it? But when I looked for it to yield grapes, it yielded wild grapes. So verse 5, now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. In other words, it will no longer be protected from animals, etc. I will break down its wall, it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Well, this happened to all 12 tribes. The 10 northern tribes were taken into captivity in 721 BC by the Assyrians, and the two lower tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were taken into captivity in 586 BC. Now, this is what happened to them because of their idolatry and many other sins. And so it's very important that this background be known when you start reading the New Testament because the teachings of the New Testament are in the Old Testament, but the teachings of the New Testament help explain even more the Old Testament. So how can Isaiah 5, how can that be related to the New Testament? Well, let's take a look at Matthew 21, verses 33 and following. Jesus relates Isaiah 5 through a parable. And a parable is just an extended metaphor about what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, parables aren't always about the kingdom of heaven, but in this case, it is. And here's how he talks about it. And listen how care carefully 
it is in correct understanding of Isaiah 5. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So this is very close to Isaiah 5, where God had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. And now in the Matthew passage, he lends it out to tenants and he kind of goes away. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Boy, I've been learning about that. Uh, when I drive to the four congregations I'm serving in Illinois, we go by a lot of fields, put on about 700 miles a week. And many of them were cornfields or bean fields. And what surprised me is the corn was beautiful, it was tall, it was green, and then it started becoming yellow and it looked really bad. And I wasn't sure, were they waiting too long to pick the corn? But I soon found out is that when it becomes dry, that's when you pick the corn. And we saw a, a machine Sunday. I mean, it was the length of the width of a church. And it was going down the rows of corn and picking them. And what, what was so amazing to me is they not only were able to separate the husks, the corn cobs from the plants, but then when it went into the truck, the kernels by themselves were going into the truck. It's, it's just really amazing. I like to know more about that. But this was really good corn. Now, it wasn't sweet corn. I always thought that any corn grown was sweet corn, but I found out there's five different kinds of corn. And some of the fields appear to be cut only in half the stalks. And I learned that that was seed corn, whereas others, it was all the way down to the ground. So that's what God was expecting, that the harvest would be taken and that the owner, of course, would receive the benefits of that. Well, listen to verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Wow. If that isn't what happened in the Old Testament books, these servants were the prophets of God, and they were beaten and put to death. And therefore, they did not bring back the prophets for the owner because these tenants had decided to keep it for themselves. And therefore, he sent, they sent the servants that the owner had sent to them, they sent them 
often to their death. Verse 36, what did the owner do? Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Now, there are a lot of prophets in the Old Testament. You, you, you can take a look at Moses was a prophet. Elijah was a prophet. And, and then later on, we got Isaiah and Jeremiah. I mean, just read the books of the Old Testament and the prophets warning the people to stop from their idolatry, to stop from their unrepentance. And they did not. In fact, I, I really enjoyed last week's gospel reading. The father eats sour grapes and the children have teeth on their edge. I didn't know what really what that meant till I did a study on it. And it was a proverb that often is true that the sins of the parents can have an effect on the children. They eat sour grapes and the children have bad teeth when they are born. And that's really true. You have mothers who are on cocaine and there's an illness when the child is born. Uh, you've got situations, David sinned with Bathsheba and the consequences of his sin went to the whole family of David, even though they were not responsible for the sin of Bathsheba. That's how the parable could be properly understood. But when Judah went into Babylonian captivity, they used the parable and they said, the sins of the forefathers, and, and that was talking about the 10 tribes that had been taken into captivity by Assyria. They had sinned and we're now being punished for it. They sinned before we were even born. And we who were unborn at the time are reaping the consequences of their sin. So they use the parable to say that God was unjust. Why am I getting the consequences of the sin of my fathers? But God made it very clear that they were in Babylonian captivity, not because of the sins of their fathers, but because of their own sins. They also had made idols and they had profaned the temple worship, etc. So God said, no longer do I want to hear that proverb, which can be true in some cases, but it's not true in the case of Judah taken into Babylonian captivity. Well, we do this all the time where we try and blame somebody else. I mentioned in the sermon, I was chasing one of my brothers around the house. We always liked wrestling. And he ran into his bedroom and closed the door. I couldn't stop running. And I hit the door and it cracked down the middle. Now I tried to fix it by putting scotch tape on it. <laughs> but it didn't take long before my parents figured out. And I blamed my brother for closing the door too hard. Well, it didn't take long for them to realize that I was the one responsible. But see how we like to shift responsibility to others? That's bad repentance. When we repent of a sin, but then try to blame somebody else for the sin. What we're really doing is blaming God. 
Thanks, God, for the spouse you gave me. Thanks, God, for the job that you provided me with this lousy employer. Or thanks, God, for these terrible employees that I have in my job. It's very important to understand improper repentance always tries to shift the blame, and it is always shifted to God himself. So getting back to the Matthew reading, we've already read the Isaiah 5 reading. So in the Matthew reading, he sends his servants, but the tenants end up killing them, etc. Finally, verse 37 of Matthew 21 he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. It doesn't take much reading of the New Testament to realize that this son is none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the tenants, who would be the unbelieving Pharisees, they say, boy, if we let him keep on preaching, then the Romans are going to get angry at us, and they will take away our power and our authority. So they end up killing Jesus to protect their inheritance. And what do they do? They take him outside the vineyard. They take him outside of Jerusalem. And on a garbage dump, they crucify him along with two others. And that's what they did in verse 39. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the listeners of Jesus say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. If that isn't what happened in the New Testament, we know that in 70 AD, the Romans came and destroyed the temple. And many people fled from Jerusalem. Now, what does it mean that he will give the vineyard to new tenants? Well, the vineyard is none other than the Holy Christian Church. And who are the new tenants? They are those Jews that did believe in Jesus and also the Gentiles who came to faith. And Jesus said to those who were listening, quoting the Old Testament, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is the cornerstone. Why do they call it a cornerstone? If you go to most buildings, if you would remove the cornerstone, uh, part of the wall, if not the whole building, will come down. And the cornerstone is the foundation for the rest of the building a lot of times. And in churches, 
that are built, the cornerstone often has the date of construction on it. And it's in near the bottom, obviously, of the building, and it helps keep the building up. This is the Lord's doing. This is just another simple way of talking about law and gospel. If you put in your own cornerstone, like the Pharisees were trying to do, it is going to fall. But God is the one doing the cornerstone. So we're not saved by any obedience to the law, any good work that we're able to do, any good construction. We're saved instead by Jesus becoming the cornerstone. And that's the Lord's doing. It is he who sent his only begotten son into the world to pay for our sins on the accursed cross. And that's what Jesus did. And that was done outside of Jerusalem. In case you're wondering, is that really what Jesus is talking about in his parable? That it's the church, the kingdom of God? Listen to verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, and Jesus is talking to Jews of his day, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, it's very clear from the context that Jesus is talking not just to people who are listening to him, but to the chief priests and the Pharisees. How do I know this? It's the next verse, verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them, that they are the ones who not only did terrible things to the prophets, but when the Son of God comes, they are going to throw him outside the vineyard, outside of Jerusalem, and put him to death. They understood what he was talking about, but they didn't make proper application. So instead of repenting, what did they do? They met together and secretly devised a plan to put Jesus to death using Judas, arresting Jesus, and putting him to death on the cross. Now, why didn't they not arrest him when he was speaking his parables? That's found in verse 46. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Wow. So much faith on the part of the Pharisees and scribes that they wouldn't even arrest someone they thought was blaspheming against God because of their fear of the crowds. See, that's the difference between unbelievers and believers. We believers as Christians are willing to speak up against the sins of the world today 
Yes, we may be attacked for that, but it will not bother us because God says he will never leave us nor forsake us. Call upon him in the day of prayer and he will be there with us at all times. So I find these two readings quite interesting. Isaiah 5 and Matthew 21 are really talking about the same events. And they all are really finally referring us to Jesus Christ as the Son of God, who died for our sins, rose for our justification, ascended into heaven at the right hand of God, where we are also there because we're part of the body of Christ. And wherever the head is, so also is the body. So, this is a wonderful example of how the New Testament helps us to understand the Old Testament. I'm Tom Baker. Thanks for listening to today's broadcast. Tomorrow we're going to take a look at a hymn, O Love, How Deep, How Broad, How High. And that'll be with Mark Smith. Join us tomorrow on Law and Gospel. God bless you. Listen to Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.